Father, we just uh, we, we thank you again for this time together. I pray tonight, Father, that, that as, I, as I read and teach, that ultimately that you'll work beyond my inadequacies. And um, Father, I know, I know them. You know them. Uh, I just pray that you will speak, uh, speak beyond me and, and, and teach us about your gospel uh, and, and about the message behind it, Father. I pray that you'll just uh, open our eyes to something maybe we've never seen before, never realized before. I just pray that you'll teach us. And it's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our focus has been the gospel. Um, it's, it has been something that has been near and dear to me for some time, and just recently I've been able to put into words and, and been able to... I mean, the gospel's been near and dear to all of us that are believers for, for as long as we've been believers, but something has, has struck me over the last several years that I, I think sometimes we don't focus on it enough, or we, or we forget about it, and we begin to lean on so many other things in this life, but it's really because of the gospel that we can do much of the things that we do, even, even in our relationships, in our marriages, in our jobs. The, the gospel invades every part of our life, and it, it, it ultimately changes um, how we deal in those situations and those aspects of our life. Now, last week, or actually two weeks ago, we started in the book of John chapter, John chapter 3, and as we did that, I was struck for the first time, this was something that was new to me, I was struck by the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 where, where Nicodemus has witnessed Christ performing miracles, and in, he's just in awe of what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem. Jesus came into Jerusalem, clears the temple, makes a name for himself, I'm sure, I'm sure people were like, whoa, what's going on with this guy? And then he begins to work miracles and you read this at the end of John chapter 2, heals and, 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 and does all kinds of amazing works, and people's lives are changed because of it. And Nicodemus comes to him at night in response to this. And, and he comes to him in awe. He's like, we know you're from God. We know that you've been, that, that God's power rests on you. And um, because of that, Rabbi, you know, ultimately, he's going to ask him to teach him. But Jesus doesn't give him a chance to ask the question. He just begins to teach. And the first thing he begins to teach him is about regeneration or being born again or born from above. Being made spiritually alive. And last week as we went through that, and, and ultimately I, I hope that you were able to get something from it, but last week as, as we went through that, it's ultimately regeneration is a huge topic. I mean, we could talk about it for much more than what we're going to focus on in this chapter. But the, the things that I wanted you to see that Jesus taught Nicodemus is that regeneration is God's work. Ultimately, you have no power to regenerate anybody. Regeneration, what, what's born of the flesh is flesh, and what's born of the spirit is spirit. So to become spiritually alive, to be regenerated and to be made alive, it's got to happen by God's work. Regeneration is man's greatest need. Without being born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not know eternal life. You won't ever enter into heaven, and you won't know that life today. Regeneration is mysterious but true. It's, it, you know, you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't hold on to it, but it's as real as the emotions that you feel whenever somebody tells a stupid joke and then you laugh. It's as real as the emotions. The exercise I, I, I had you guys do last week was look into one another's eyes and look into the person that's sitting next to you's eyes 
And there's this weird kind of uncomfortable feeling when you look at somebody intently like that and, and you're not saying anything. So there's just something weird happening. You can't quantify that. You can't put that into a box and, and wrap it up and give it to somebody. You, you know, it's not a solid thing, but it's real. And, and regeneration, while there have been many people that have, have tried to define it and tried to talk about it, and, and there is greater teaching in Scripture than this one point, the truth is, is that no matter how hard you, tar- how hard you try, there's a, a divine side to regeneration that you and I can't define, we can't work it out, we can't totally comprehend it, we might be able to apprehend it or at least acknowledge it, but we can't figure it all out because it's divine, it's God's work. And so... He let Nicodemus know that. And regeneration is the beginning of salvation. Ultimately, this is where salvation begins. Salvation does not begin at us saying the sinner's prayer. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. Counting on, on your salvation based on some prayer you said as, as a kid or even a week ago. Well, I'm a Christian because I said this prayer. Well, no, that doesn't force God's hand in regeneration. Regeneration happens by God's power, by His decree, by His choice, by His sovereign will. Now, I don't want to negate repentance. I don't want to negate faith. Those are all biblical concepts, and we'll talk about those things tonight. But you and I cannot force God to regenerate us or anyone else. Okay? So here we go. Now, let me me give you an illustration based on that. When I was in the Army, there were plenty of people who put on military uniforms. But just because they put on a military uniform, that didn't make them a soldier. I worked with this one, one person uh, as, a, as an aircraft mechanic. I was a Black Hawk mechanic, and I was assigned to the same aircraft as this other person. And, and she and I were, how do I, how do I, how do I, I, I guess the best way to say it is we were attached to the general's headquarters. I mean, we flew the helicopter. We, we didn't fly it. We were crew chiefs on the general's helicopter. And every day, she'd get up, and she'd put on that flight uniform, and she'd come to work, and she'd pick up her toolbox, and she'd tow it out to the aircraft. But I'll tell you what. All due respect to her, she was not a mechanic. She just wasn't. And just because you got the tools, and just because she had the uniform and had all the external trappings, didn't make her a mechanic. Lewis is a doctor. You've heard the commercial that says, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. How many of you are going to take your kids or your brother or sister to a doctor who is not really a doctor, but I play one on TV? Just because they put on the white coat, hang the stethoscope around their neck, have the external trappings, that doesn't make them a doctor. And that's what regeneration is about. You You can do all kinds of things. And you can set yourself up with all kinds of external trappings. But regeneration is God's work inside of you, making you alive. And that's where Jesus started with Nicodemus. Now, here's the, here's, here's the interesting thing. And we talked about this, and we, we made fun of ourselves, but the authenticity of the church, the authenticity of God's people, is founded right here. It, it, it's, it's built on the truth of regeneration. Without it, we're no different than Pharisees. We're no different than anybody else out there that's working for their righteousness and their salvation. Mormons, boy, they're good people. They're 
They're, they're, they, they live moral lives. But I can't say that any of them have ever been regenerated because they over and over deny the work of Christ on the cross. It doesn't matter what's happening on the outside if it's not already happening on the inside. As we understand that, and that was last week's lesson, I don't want to dwell there too long, but as we understand that, we move forward in this passage and and we can't forget... God's sovereignty in in regeneration. We can't forget that. But we're about to come to a place where we begin to see man's duty, man's man's response uh, illustrated. And so if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3, we're going to be focusing on the verses 9 through uh, 21. I'm going to read along, and I'll make some comments along the way. But... uh, before we do that, let me just set, set up for everybody again. Let's just remind ourselves of the context. Nicodemus has come to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who is from God. This is in verse 2. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And so Jesus begins to teach him this thing. As he teaches him this thing, Nicodemus can't believe it. He's like... He's in shock. He's like, how can this be? I don't get it. He's, he's, he's externalizing this idea of, of being born again. He's, he's imagining trying to get back into his mother's womb. And that is just a crazy thought. But you know, if, if we'd heard it for the first time, we'd probably think something very similar. And he comes to this place. He's like, how can this be? And here's Jesus' answer to him in verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Now, as I, as I hear that, man, I almost hear sarcasm just dripping from it. And I don't want to say that Jesus was sarcastic or hurtful or, or mean in any way. But, I mean, it, 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 as this presents itself, you're the one teaching these people and you don't understand this? You're not getting it? You don't know, you, you don't know about this? You see, Jesus knows Nicodemus. He knows what he needs to hear. He knows his heart. He knows all about him. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, let me remind you that Jesus says, or or, or that Jesus doesn't say, but it's said about Jesus that as he works these miracles and people believe him, it says that he's not relying on their testimony because he knows the heart of man. He knows Nicodemus. He has no doubt that this is the most important lesson that Nicodemus could ever hear. Jesus is not surprised that Nicodemus doesn't know this. He's not not at this place and he's like, whoa, he's not in shock. But I think he's trying to get Nicodemus to look beyond what Nicodemus has always trusted in. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who's working hard for his righteousness. Nicodemus is a a man who, who, if I can just do the right things, I can find acceptance before God. And Jesus is trying to work past that and get Nicodemus to see beyond the works that he's doing, and to see what Jesus already knows about him. You're the teacher of these people, and you don't understand this. He goes on to say in verse 11, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, <clears throat> Jesus defends his argument for truth. He's, he's saying, 
I'm speaking to you of something that I know. He, I, I'm the man who can speak of these things. He's, he's essentially saying that until you go any further, or, or I'm sorry, you can't go any further until you get this, and I'm the person that's able to tell you that. I know of what I speak of. I know what I'm talking about. I'm already about, I'm proving to you that you've missed the point. But I know what I've seen. I know what, I've, what, what I'm telling you, and I know that it's true. But, but he's letting Nicodemus that, know that this is the first lesson he's got to learn. Think back. Remember why Nicodemus came to him. He came to be taught. He wanted to experience what it was like to be near Jesus. He, he saw Jesus working miracles. He saw God's power in him. And remember, I've, I've said this every week that we've talked about Nicodemus, that the Jews at this time, they were starving to see God's power. For 400 years, they hadn't experienced God's power through the prophets. They hadn't heard him speaking through the prophets. In, in their eyes, he'd been very quiet, almost distant. And I, I'm sure that this time is coming, and, and, and as Jesus walks and he begins to do this work, and he begins to demonstrate his ministry, they see this, and they, they're finally... Finally, here he is. Here's, here's, here's the prophet. Here's this teacher that's got God's power. And Nicodemus goes and says, we know that you're from God. He wasn't alone. He may have been by himself that night, but he wasn't alone in his thoughts. He wasn't alone in his position. We know that you're from God. Rabbi. He wants to learn from him. He wants to be taught by him. And Jesus gives Nicodemus his first lesson. And that first lesson is this. Men are hopeless to know life if God does not give it to them. Men are hopeless to know life if God doesn't give it to them. His work, our greatest need, mysterious but true, and the beginning of salvation, we would never know it if God hadn't brought it. We couldn't understand it. We couldn't comprehend it. We couldn't make it our own way if God hadn't worked it out. Now, I want to contrast Nicodemus with a couple of other people that came to Jesus and called him rabbi. Back at the beginning of John, John chapter 1, I don't have the verses up here for you, so if you turn back to John chapter 1, and you look at verse 35, you see John the Baptist out doing what John the Baptist does. He's preaching and baptizing, and it says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard this, they turned and followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Now we just looked at that a few weeks ago, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that, but if you think about it, there's a much different thing happening here as those two men approach Jesus and say, Rabbi, where are you staying? They want the same thing. They want to be taught by Jesus. They, they, they want to sit and listen to him speak, and they want to find out the truth about him. But what happens on the other side is a very different response. 
In fact, Jesus goes on to talk about Nicodemus. Nicodemus coming to, the, to, to Jesus with the very same attitude. Nicodemus coming to Jesus, talking about the very same things. And Jesus tells him, <clears throat> I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. No matter what they saw in Jesus, they realized the power of God on him, but they wouldn't accept his testimony. They wouldn't accept his teaching. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. You do not believe. And how are you ever going to understand anything heavenly if you won't believe in this first and most important thing that I have to tell you? This earthly thing. You see, it's very easy for us to look around this world and understand that mankind is screwed up. It's easy for us to even look at our own life if we'll just be honest with ourselves for just a second. We lie, we cheat, we steal. We, we treat people that love us wrong or, 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 or rudely and, and, and oftentimes use them to gain our own uh, uh, desires. We, we, we are hateful to people that, <clears throat> that we don't even know, and we treat people without knowing the circumstances of their situation with, with a lack of compassion and mercy. And that's, just disre- that, that's totally in disregard of those gross and, and, and massive sins that all of us would agree on. Child abuse, uh, uh, spouse abuse, rape, uh, Getting drunk, so drunk that you get in a car and you kill somebody. I mean, I mean, you could pick those things out easy. See, it's easy to really stop and think. And if we'll just be honest with ourselves just for a second, it's easy to pick those things out. It's easy to understand those things. And if we can't understand that in and of ourselves we have no hope, we'll never get any further. Life, true life, eternal life comes from God. And as we'll see, it's ours to accept or reject. He goes on to say in verse 13, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man, Jesus, no other, no other man in all of history has ever had any right to say what Jesus has to say because no one knew like Jesus does. Jesus came from heaven. He is God in flesh on the earth, letting us know these eternal truths and and, and teaching us what it's all about. Our only alternative is to fall, to, to, to settle for, to settle for, the testimony of people who are imperfect and flawed and oftentimes not ready to tell the complete truth. I mean, you think about it. Nicodemus came and he says, we know you're from God. His group of people, and that's probably him and some of the other people that were on the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He says, we know you're from God, but we're going to reject any other thing that you have to say about that. We know that you have God's power, but we will reject you as the Messiah. 
we're not going to believe any other testimony about you. Or you have Jesus. And as he says we, probably speaking about prophets who had been spoken to directly by God, his disciples now, which is somewhere between five and seven strong, who have been made spiritually alive and have gone past this initial truth, we know what we testify. So who do we believe? Jesus is the only one suited to have this conversation with Nicodemus. But he empowers his people to do the same thing. He goes on to say, it it, it continues, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, to really understand this statement, you've got to understand the, the, the passage that he pulled it from. Now, he pulls this passage, or this, this picture of Moses lifting up the snake, from Numbers 21. And if you flip to Numbers 21, I'm going to set the context up for you before, before we read the passage. It's going to be uh, verses 4 through 9. This is, th- th- this is where the Israelites are at. Let me, let me set this up for you before we go any further. The Israelites have, have come out of Egypt. They've walked through the desert. They've, they've had... Uh, They've had their food supplied to them. Their shoes haven't worn out. Their clothes haven't worn out. They already have come up to, to the promised land and, and just about crossed into the promised land one time. They rejected that, oh, no, there's no way we could do it. We, we don't believe that God can do this for us. And, and they've, they've been turned around, and God sent them back out into the desert. So now they've walked around in the, in the desert for a long time. And I, I don't know how many years they've been there, but by this time, Miriam, Moses' sister, is dead. Aaron, the priest, you know, the first priest of the Levitic line, he's dead. And Moses is the, is the last surviving leader that led the Israelites out of Egypt. And so now, here they are, and, and they've just had this amazing victory. They, they thought that they were going to get their butts kicked in this war with, uh, with the Canaanites. And they said, God, if you'll just hand them over to us, if, if you'll just do this, I mean, we're, we're going to... We're going to live it right. We're going to do it just like you want us to. And so you can read that in the passage just before this. And, and they have this amazing victory. God works for them, and they see his power. And this is what happens in verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to, the go, to, to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now let's think about this. What were they eating in the desert? Manna. God provided their food every stinking day. He went ahead of them in a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. He never once left them alone. He was speaking to them and giving them law in the midst of all of this. They're walking around in the same shoes for 40 years. Their tunics or their clothes, whatever it was that they wore, never wore out. They didn't have to make new ones. They were were okay. They probably weren't faded like you see on those Tide commercials because, you know, God doesn't need Tide to keep clothes from fading. 
they were they were good. They were they were provided for. Everything was exactly everything that they needed was there. And if you flip just back a few pages, you'll see how God provided water. And here they are. Man, we're tired of this. I don't understand it. Why has it got to be this way? I don't get it. It's not the way I would have done it. Well, God took this pretty seriously. And in verse 6 it says, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many, many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole, then anyone was bitten. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, I'm just glad he doesn't send snakes for me every time I kick and, and grumble and it doesn't fit my perspective of what happens or what should happen. But God dealt with the Israelites in a, in a, in a, in a very um, specific and, and, and special way, I think, because ultimately... This gives us an amazing picture that Jesus plays off of right here. But to understand it, let me explain to you. The serpents, obviously, this is how Satan came in the garden. Serpents have always been this idea of, of an evil presence. And so here the serpents come in amongst the camp. They begin to bite, and, and they're there because of sin. They're, 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 they have come into the camp as a consequence of sin, and their consequence is, is that they bite and people die. And really, what, what begins to happen is people all of a sudden realize, wait a minute, we screwed up. We sinned. We should have never said those things about the God who's provided for us, taken care of us, watched over us, and, and guided us. We should have we never spoke against his leader, Moses. We, we sinned when we did that. Please don't let it happen anymore. Give us some answer for life. And God gives them an answer. He tells them to make that snake, make that snurpent and, serpent and raise it up on a pole. And you know what's interesting? Yeah, I know, snurpent. <laughs> Go ahead and laugh. I'm good at things like that. <clears throat> what's amazing is, is there's a picture of a serpent on a pole. And you think, well, what does that mean? Christ, as he hung there on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin. You see, the picture is of the evil on the pole being sacrificed. Just as Christ hung on the cross and took the sins of the world upon himself, he who knew no sin became sin. And so in a sense, the curse hanging there, the curse is hanging there on the cross. And people just had to look to it. People have to look to it, believe it, accept it. And so that's the picture that Jesus gives. Jesus gives this picture of, I'm going to have to be lifted up, just like that snake. I'm going to take on these, the, 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 the sins of the world. I'm going to become the curse for this sinful world. And he finishes it off by saying that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Nicodemus couldn't get past himself. He couldn't believe it. Christ is saying, 
I've come to accept it, to be that sacrifice, to accept that curse. And all you have to do is believe. Believe. Trust it. Accept it. Understand that this, it's not our choice, it's, it's, it's not our plan, but it's ours to accept. It's ours to believe in. And now as we come to this, I challenged you guys when I spoke on this verse on John 3.16 at Christmas that I never wanted us to read it the same way again. It's so easy to read this verse with, with, with the rote and memory that we're so used to, and, and we just we can spit it out without even looking. But as we come to this verse, I want you to remember what we spoke about at Christmas. And for those that weren't here, I'll, I'll just summarize quickly. God's love is so amazing because you don't deserve it. When, when this verse was written, and, and, and as we read it today, it should strike us with an idea and a sense that I can't believe He still loves us. But this is His grace. This is, this is the, who God is. And he loves those that are undeserving. But it says that for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is God's prescription for salvation. You don't have to like it. You don't have to, you, it doesn't have to fit your ideas about, about what should happen. It, it doesn't have to make sense to you. It doesn't have to make sense to me. God's the one that said, I'm going to save people in this way. I'm not the sovereign one that gets to make that choice. I'm not the one who created the world perfect. I'm a part of the race that screwed it all up. So as God says this, He's the one. It's His prescription. It does not have to answer all of our questions. What are some questions about salvation we have? Being that Jesus is the only way. I listened to some videos this week. I almost shared one. I thought, I'm going to go long as it is. I'm not going to lengthen it out by a video. But I've, I heard over and over New Age people talking about, well, you can't say Jesus is the only way. Oprah Winfrey on her show. Uh, Eckhart Tolle, if you say that Jesus is the only way, you've entered into some ideology that you can't prove and you can't answer all the questions for. You know what? As long as they reject Christ, they'll never get it. As long as they're dead in their spirit, they'll never understand it. They'll never move beyond it. What about all those people across the world that never hear about Jesus? Like in China and India. Do you realize that Christianity was in China and India before the United States even existed? And the reason it's not there today is because somewhere along the way, people decided not to remember. They decided not to believe. I had some friends that went to Fiji. Fiji started off as a cannibalistic set of group of islands. It's a, 
I'm going to screw it all up. And I'm geographically challenged. But anyway, they, 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 they went to this place for their honeymoon. They're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, their, their little shack is sitting out on this island. There's no TV. There's no phones. There's no roads. I mean, they had to get brought to this shack by a little canoe that went, goes between islands. They're out in... I mean, they're, they're out there. I could say something and be, be offensive, and I'm not going to do that. They're out there in the middle of nowhere. And they're sitting in their shack. It's like a, I don't know, Friday or Saturday. And they're talking about, man, it would be cool to be able to go to church. And they get up and they start talking to, I, I guess there's, I'm sure there's people that come in and help and stuff like that. And they find out that this group of islands, out in the middle of nowhere, has turned from cannibalism to Christianity and its history. Because somebody heard the call and followed their Lord to a place where nobody else was going. And they shared the truth of the gospel. And instead of eating people, which is what they would have done, they began to love Jesus and to love others and to love one another. So let me tell you this. If God can bring Jesus to Fiji... He can bring Jesus wherever he wants to. And I don't, I don't have all the answers. I, I, I got plenty of questions. But I'm not the one that wrote the, the rules. I'm not the one that decided the plan. God did. And it doesn't have to meet all of our conditions. If God came down and tried to meet all of our conditions, He wouldn't be good enough for us. Because if He met my conditions, He wouldn't live up to yours. If His plan of salvation was good enough for me, and He was just trying to meet my needs, then it's likely it wouldn't be good enough for others. You see, it doesn't have to meet our, our, our conditions. We don't take God and make Him fit us. We take ourselves and we give ourselves to Him and let Him shape us to fit Him. He's the Creator. We're the creation. Without this, we're already condemned. People don't like to talk about condemnation today. I don't like to talk about condemnation today. It's not a fun topic. It's not fun to think that there's going to be people die and go to hell. It's not, going to, it's not fun to think that that if they could just just click some switch in their head that they could believe, you know. And, and because they don't believe, they're already condemned. But that's what Jesus said. You see, He didn't come to condemn because we're already condemned. We're already lost. He came so that there would be a way for salvation. He doesn't have to condemn us. We did that ourselves. God loved us so much that He gave us a way to know Him, to step back into relationship with Him, to know Him not just for eternity, but starting right now, to know Him in this life and to see things in a different light, to, 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 to have darkness in one moment and have light in the next, to, to understand spiritual truth and have an ability to take off the rose-tinted glasses and see it for what it really is. God did that because He loved us so much. Condemnation is not fun to talk about. But without God doing what He's done, we're already there. 
our responsibility. And he said it over and over in this verse. Our responsibility is to respond in faith. Not rewrite it. Not not make it fit our perspective. Not candy coat it so that it makes us feel all fluffy inside. But to understand who we are. And by faith who we can be. God regenerates. He brings people to life. All we can do is respond in faith. And he's able to do that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. What do you believe? What do you believe? Every head bowed and every eye closed. We don't have invitations. We, I, I, I think we need times to reflect and just to think. So I want you to push every competing... If you want to push every competing idea, every competing pressure of your life, just push it away in this moment. And I want you to ask. And I want you to be intent before God. If there's some area of unbelief, I want you to cry out for him to just help you in that unbelief. Cry out for him to show you the truth. This week I I watched a video of a man who who was in the hard rock group Corn. He sat there tattooed from just all over his body, his hair stringy. And before it was all done, I was in tears because he talked about how Jesus had changed him. And made him able to believe. I'm going to tell you, this is real. And I think you already know it. But I think that oftentimes we get so busy dodging the snakes, trying to jump over them so that we don't get bitten. In my own life, and as someone who is deeply concerned about each and every person sitting in this room, I ask you to show us what do we truly believe? Are we, are we claiming some, some intellectual assent to know that Christ came and that He died on the cross? Are, are we talking just in answers, Father? Or have you regenerated us and made us new from the inside out so that as we believe, we, we're, we're made alive and, and adopted into your kingdom, adopted as your child? Father, I pray that if there's people in this room tonight that, that need to repent before you, that need to respond in faith before you, God. I pray that you work it on them and in them right now. This is your gospel. 
And I thank you for this wonderful and amazing news. I thank you that you have given us a way to come out of condemnation and to step into light, to step into life. God, don't let anybody leave here tonight without coming face to face with this truth and an opportunity to place their faith in you. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think Jackson's going to play for a minute. I just want you to think about it.